field crest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. Attention at Columbus. Subject to 1074. Electronic identity aware. NCJA 1014. 10 quarters to 11, 1205. NCJA 1014. There's so much information on the subject of hemp. It literally takes two podcasts to cover. And as we noted in a previous podcast, there is a growing problem for law enforcement throughout the country concerning hemp, specifically because it is sometimes confused with the cannabis plants that serve as sources of marijuana and hashish. Hello, everyone. This is Kirk Puckett. In order to continue part two of this podcast, it is my pleasure to welcome back the Justice Academy's resident hemp expert, Bill Lokes. Bill is a narcotics and gang instructor on the West Campus in Edneyville. In part one of the series, we talked about how hemp was already causing issues for some agencies and how cops on the street can avoid creating more problems for themselves and their agencies. In this episode, we're going to delve into the legality and sale of hemp, a bit more about possession, and we'll talk about the issues for law enforcement, and we'll get specific about those. So once again, we are social distancing with me in one location, Bill in another, and our expert producer and director, Ramona Higgins, completing the trifecta by putting this all together from yet another location. Bill, in part one of this topic, you absolutely took us to school on hemp, and it became evident that we couldn't cover everything in one episode. So first, let me welcome you back again. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and glad to be of help to clear up the confusion all the way around. Well, and before we get started, I certainly want to encourage folks who are listening, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click up on part one of this topic that's still available right here on the Justice Academy website. First, probably not a bad idea to remind us again, kind of a little definition about what hemp is. Well, hemp is the cannabis sativa L plant. It contains less than point. 3% THC concentration. The THC that I'm speaking about is Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. That's your main psychoactive ingredient that will cause users to get high or feel psychotropic effects. Again, the main legal difference between hemp and marijuana is the Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. In short, cannabis with the THC concentration above 0.3% on a dry weight basis is actually marijuana. Once it hits below 0.3%, it's classified on the federal and the state side as hemp. So to kind of help clear things up just a little bit more for the cops out on the street, is hemp legal to possess and smoke? Absolutely it is. On December 16th, 2018, the Farm Bill, United States Farm Bill, removed hemp from the Federal Controlled Substance Act. It listed it at as a commodity, meaning it's the same thing as a bag of chips, Doritos, I'm from the north, so I'm going to call it pop, tires, clothing, whatever it is. So it's legal to possess it if it is assuming that it is actually hemp. When I'm talking about possession, that means there's no restrictions. That means anyone can have anywhere from a gram up to five, six, seven thousand pounds. How can you consume it and smoke it? That's the other thing. A lot of people discussed about the fact, well, I thought smokable hemp got removed when the last General Assembly came together in 2019, and it didn't. The hemp provision was stripped 
out of the North Carolina Farm Bill because there's still a lot of confusion and a lot of people don't have answers to go to the lawmakers yet. So they stripped it out of that provision. So the term smokable hemp means just basically it's the raw, it's the bud or the flower. I'm going to call it a bud, just like we would in the marijuana realm, that you can actually smoke. There was a bill that was up there, and they were trying to remove what they were classifying as the smokable smokable version, make it illegal, but it was they were unable to do that. That would have cleared up a lot of confusion for police, but if you look deep into the federal side, how do you sit down and say, you can have hemp in an oil, you can have hemp in seeds, but you can't actually have the raw flour itself? In term, a lot of people sit down and still get confused about that. But if I break it down into a food product and say, well, that's like telling somebody, well, you can have a bag of Doritos. You can open that bag of Doritos. You can have as many bags of Doritos as you want. When you eat the Doritos, you have to eat the Doritos whole. You can't crush it up and say, put it in nachos, you know, crush it up like tortilla chips or something like that. And, you know, dip it in a chip dip. You can only consume it whole. There is no way to make that total distinction because of the way the plant is and the way it is defined in the federal law. So it's legal to possess. It's legal to smoke it, add it into your foods. FDA considers hemp as what they call grass, generally recognized as safe, not grass meaning weed, meaning hemp if it's actually hemp products, like their seeds and stuff like that, it's recognized as safe to uh, use it as like a supplement, add it into drinks and, or something like that. Once you have the product, though, you can do with it whatever you want. Somebody can advertise that it's meant to embed into like a food product or something like that because it's on certain aspects. But once you get it, there's no way to somebody to say, well, you can't take it like that. You can't mix it up and put like ground up hemp, say, which would be nasty into your eggs or something. Um, but you're able to do that. You're able to work with it however you want. The smokable hemp, though, would have cleared up some of the confusion, but it was very hard to remove just that piece of this, the way it's classified on the federal side. Okay, I'm glad you cleared up that acronym about the grass part, too, because I was starting to get a little bit confused, which doesn't take much. So that brings me to this question. If it is a commodity and hemp is comparable to that bag of chips or that set of tires, and I think if if I wanted to set up a tire store on the corner, I could probably do that, provided I got local licensing and had somebody to supply as a vendor. What about hemp? Who can sell hemp? Anybody can sell hemp. Um, there is nothing in the state or the federal statutes that give any sort of restrictions that say only licensed practitioners or dispensaries, if you were like, say, in a medical marijuana state or even a recreational state. Anyone can sell it. And we have seen it sold. Personally, I've seen it in Sunoco gas stations, Exxon gas stations. I've seen it at golf courses back in the clubhouse. I've seen it at uh, physician's offices. I've seen it at chiropractor's offices. I've seen it in Target. <laughs> I've seen it in Walmart. I've seen it in Whole Foods. Plus, you cannot drive down the road and not see the smoke shops with the big neon flashing signs that say Kratom out front and CBD or hemp somewhere out there. So even the smoke shops have it. 
The only restriction is, do you have a business license that allows you to actually be a business to sell? That's the only restriction there is to it. You mentioned those magic three letters, CBD. And in our last episode, I was telling you about, just like you were saying a while ago, driving down the road and you see CBD this, CBD that. We've got CBD here for sale. Talk about the differences between hemp and CBD. Hemp is your main product. That is your plant. Cannabis sativa L. CBD stands for cannabidiol, and it's one of the cannabinoids that is derived or extracted from the hemp plant. When we're talking about extracted, we're talking the same way somebody would extract THC from marijuana plant in a BHO or butane honey oil operation. Two main cannabinoids that come from the plant itself. You have THC. When I'm again, when I'm referencing to THC, I'm talking about the main psychoactive ingredient that causes users to get high and/or feel psychotropic effects. And on the other side, cannabidiol (CBD) is the other main derived product from it. So there has to be an extraction process from it, and then it takes various forms. Those extraction processes go from hydrocarbon extracts like butane, or they can use alcohol. They can use a free-dried method to freeze the trichomes off of the plant, which is like the little sticky resin itself, and shake it off the plant, and then in turn extract that once it's removed from the plant material itself. But it's a cannabinoid that is derived from the actual cannabis sativa L plant. That again contains less than 0.3% THC concentration. My first question concerning cops is what issues do you see for police when it comes to hemp? making the determinations of whether or not it is hemp or weed. When I'm talking about weed, I'm talking about the illegal substance, marijuana itself. Hemp looks like weed and smells like weed. Our only determining factor is the THC concentration in it. You can't look at a plant and go, oh, that looks really, really like a hydroponic plant. That that definitely is going to have a high concentration of THC. Look, it's got really frosty trichomes or something on it. So the biggest problem is recognition of it. If I look historically across the United States, I can tell you with great assurity that I probably 98 to 99% of cops in non-medical or recreational states have zero or bare minimum training on the difference between hemp and marijuana. And to me, that's alarming because there's lawsuits happening all over the place. And then what in turn, if you make an inadvertent arrest or seizure thinking it is hemp, how does that viewed in the district attorney's eyes and everything? How does that start to kind of ping your record with how they view you and your cases? I was somebody that was proud that most of the time, if I come up to a court case, there was a lot of defense attorneys that wanted to take a plea before they even put me on the stand. I took pride in that. There was a lot of defense attorneys that knew my work and I had a good reputation. We had a solid unit. But the biggest thing is recognition. And I'm proud to say here in North Carolina, from what I've seen so far, we are the first in the United States to finally have mandated or an in-service training topic on this for the more than 25 plus thousand law enforcement officers in the state. No one else has this. Even if they may have more restrictive rules regarding hemp and or CBD and stuff, most of those states don't have any training. I know this because one, I'm an associate board member for the International 
Narcotics Interdiction Association. So I network with people throughout the United States and I put out emails and ask them, is anyone having hemp issues one? And has anyone had mandated training? And the answer is yes, we're having hemp issues, even in the legalized states. And two, they have not had training. So I'm proud to say here at the Justice Academy, we're paving the way nationally to set a standard to say, okay, this is a new topic. We recognize it as a topic and an issue for law enforcement. Law enforcement faces enough day to day in our current world. There's no way to say we don't. Most cops come out of roll call already in the negative with the way that they've been viewed by the bad publicity, the way the news has ran away and made us look like the bad guys and gals. So I'm proud to say that we recognize this as a problem. We've developed the solution. We've put an effective plan into place and an effective in-service training platform. Even though it's two hours, it gives them something. So the biggest issue I see is recognition and identification. What it is and what can I do the legal knowledge. How do I need to proceed? Can I field test? Can I actually see some of it for field testing? We address that all in our in-service training. Well, certainly kudos to the Justice Academy and to you as well, because even though I haven't seen it, I would just about bet that your name appears somewhere on that course outline. So I'm glad you brought up the field tests. Are there field tests to help us determine if it is, in fact, him? There are. And when we're talking about field tests, there's there's differences out there. If you look at NICS, Sirachi or something like that, those are what they call wet chemistry field tests. Essentially, you're looking for a chemical reaction so you can analyze that for the color change and you interpret whether it is or is not a controlled substance by the color change. There are field tests out there. A new one that seems to have hit the market and not giving them an advertisement, but I can tell you from experience and what I've dealt with and with multiple applications of trial and error through this, uh, Detecticam seems to lead the market. International Association of Chiefs of Police, I believe, has written an article about it. Several other, I think, New England Narcotics Officer Association has written an article about it, about the success that's out there and the technology that's available. And it's, even though a field test I have to put this out, is presumptive. It just helps you as another piece of establishing probable cause. If you field test and that's all you have, you have nothing else, no interview or nothing else, you're about to create bad law because there are a lot of false positives. I know this because I'm a trainer trainer, one of the certified trainer trainers with Sirachi, and I've seen the false positives. So the one of the better kits out there is the Detecticam test kit. And the other reason I say it's one of the better ones, think about in your experiences, how many times have you been on, say, midnight shift? It's two o'clock in the morning. You're testing the substance. You've stopped somebody on a traffic stop. You've arrested them because they've got warrants, whatever the case is. DUI, you're searching a vehicle. You find something that you think is crack or cocaine or meth. You pop the field test kit. You're going through the actual steps. Remember that you should. 30 seconds, agitate, agitate, agitate. After your first ampule, pop the second you know, ampule, 30 seconds. You go through that whole step. It's dark out. Blue red lights are flashing. And you're trying to figure out, did this kit turn blue, pink? Can I see a light hit a blue? You know, you're holding it up against the light. You're asking your partner, hey, can you take a look at this? There's a lot of things that can go wrong in that. With the Detecticam test kit, it'll tell you word for word, not like color. It tells you word for word. Marijuana, CBD. That's beautiful. It scans to your phone. You can scan it and it prints out a PDF that you can actually dump into the case file. 
It takes an actual picture of the test kit, the results, what they give for an evaluation. It tells you the date and time. It tells you, a, I think, like a 14-digit grid down to where you took the actual test at. That's beautiful information out there. And that's a good piece of the puzzle to add to this overall probable cause picture. And that's where a lot of people forget about that. It's just one more piece to establish probable cause in your arrest itself. So, yes, there are field test kits out there. There's different ones between the wet chemistry and a dry kit out there. Some agencies won't try the dry one. Some people are really scared of it. And there's a lot of agencies, as soon as they look at like the detective cam, they sit down and dump Sirachi, Nicks, and all the other groups and go, nope, we're going with that. There's a lot of district attorneys that sit down and are finally realizing to include a lot of magistrates that I've recently talked with and done some training with that they want to see this come back into circulation and done right. So there are test kits out there that are going to help you make these roadside determinations. Well, just hearing that information from Detective Kim alone is worth the price of admission to this podcast because that is absolutely amazing science that a field test kit can do all those things that you just described. Maybe we ought to get these folks from Detective Kim working on COVID or the common cold. You also mentioned bad law. In your previous answer, you also talked about the fact that the cops kind of come out of the gate in the negative. So we automatically are careful about the things we do, how we do them, the things we say, how we say them, because there's always that possibility of the big L, and I'm talking about lawsuits. So have there been lawsuits against law enforcement with these inadvertent seizures and arrest of him? Yes, there are lawsuits, inadvertent seizures and arrest of hemp all over from California to New York, all the way across the United States. One of the first notable lawsuits that was out there came from Boise, Idaho, where an officer stopped a tractor trailer that had more than two tons of hemp in it. Looked like weed, smelled like weed. Made an arrest. He turned around and got sued because it was, in fact, hemp. When I say it was, in fact, hemp, the individual that actually owned the hemp that was in that tractor trailer is the person that owns my CBD store, which is a chain of CBD stores. Everybody's heard in the last year and a half where great-grandma got arrested at Disney World with CBD. That officer was right according to law and his policies. But great-grandma got arrested on a vacation down there. She spent a small bit of time in jail because this officer was working extra duty at Disney World there in Florida. That's now an $18 million lawsuit. More notably, you can't sit down and say, well, these are like state guys that are having this type of issue. There's a federal case that happened where an individual was hired to come out of Florida, drive a truck, and it was a U-Haul box truck from San Jose, California to Bronx, New York. It contained a little over 2,000 pounds of hemp inside of the truck itself. He was stopped in Texas by Texas DPS, which is their highway patrol. The driver had paperwork showing that that was hemp. The Texas DPS officer contacted the DEA. DEA, TFO, came out. Did an interview with the driver, looked at it from the issue of like a interdiction stop, because for interdiction wise, it fit about every piece of the puzzle we look at and say, oh, yeah, that's there's going to be dope in that vehicle. The individual was arrested. He spent, I think, about 31 to 32 days in jail on a federal hold. They figured out in that period of time the product that was in the back of the vehicle was actually hemp. 
So he had to get, because the federal side adopted the case, they had to, in turn, dismiss all the charges without prejudice. I saw that press release come out on that on both ends when the arrest was made and when the actual dismissal of charges happened on the federal side. And that individual is now suing the federal government for the arrest. What made it bad was the guy was arrested in December, so he actually spent Christmas in jail. What made it worse than that, though, on that same trip, that same individual, same box truck, was stopped in Arizona and arrested and spent about 18 to 19 hours in jail before someone finally made the determination, said, you know what, this may actually be hemp. This guy had paperwork. They released him, put him back in the truck, and sent him on his way. So in that trip, cross-country, he got arrested not once, but twice by two separate agencies in two separate states. More notably, within the last 30 to 40 days, Tennessee Highway Patrol is now in a lawsuit. Tennessee laws for hemp are a little bit different than North Carolina, and they play out like this. Anytime you are transporting a rooted root ball hemp plant or any hemp that was grown in the state of Tennessee, mean grown, you have to have a transportation form when it's still in like the plant form, meaning it's going from the harvest site, the farm to say a processing facility or from there in biomass form to say a distribution facility. With that, if you're about to transport it, you have to fill out a transportation form. Notice the transportation. The goal is you fill out the form, you're making immediate notification to law enforcement through the state database to say, I feel I'm transporting hemp stuff that we're no longer using, plant material and stuff like that to save the dump or to this distributor or to my warehouse. That means it's going on the roadway. It's telling you what vehicle it's going to be in, the license plate, who's driving it, the license number of the person who actually where this hemp derived from, showing that it was legally processed. But there's a lot of information out there on it. THP stops a girl. She has that hemp notification with her, the transportation form. She shows it to the officer. She's transporting stuff to the dump. She gets arrested. She spends a short time in jail. They figure out it's hemp. They, in turn, let her out of jail, dismiss the charges. Same trooper stops the girl again. Now, this is where it gets foggy, okay? The girl sees... She's getting stopped again. She's already spent time in jail. Stops the car. She takes off. Bails out running. She has a transportation form in her hand, and she has what is actually hemp because it was lab tested, showing what she had was actually hemp. She takes off running. She gets arrested for evading several other things. Guess what? They have to dismiss all charges. Once again, she sits down and says, I ran because I didn't want to get locked up again. I know I was right. Everything I'm doing is legal. This was the same guy who actually stopped me before. So now this is a several million dollar lawsuit once again. And it goes back to there's a lack of knowledge for a lot of agencies as to what hemp is, the right forms. And a lot of cops, until you actually see it, it'll spin your head the first time you see it and go, I can't believe that is not marijuana. I'm saying that there's a lot of education that's not happened out there. There's not a lot of information. So it has caused lawsuits against police with inadvertent seizures and arrest of hemp. And there's multiple other case studies out there. And this is both state and federal. This is, so this isn't just the local cop, a sheriff deputy, a city cop or whatever. This is also the feds jammed up in this. So there's a lot happening with it. We don't exist in peace without the brothers and sisters of blue out there. I don't care how the media paints it. I am our biggest fan because I'm still one of us. Even though I'm retired from one agency, I'm still commissioned here in North Carolina. But 
we know this world doesn't exist without us. There's a lot going on. We face enough adversity. So let's try to remove one piece of negativity or one other thing that could potentially cause us an issue day to day. So I think possibly the moral of these stories and these lawsuits would be A, take your time, B, proceed with caution, C, make sure, just as you would in any other arrest or case that you're building, that you have everything lined up. A's got to follow B and C and D every time. I want to take a little bit of a left turn on you because you mentioned terms like paperwork, which is a little bit generic, and also these forms, because I'm thinking if, if I'm a cop, I'm listening to this podcast, and I hear this guy who's the expert talking about paperwork and forms. How do I know if the paperwork and the forms are legitimate? Who will those things be issued by? Well, here from North Carolina, the biggest piece of paperwork you're going to see the start of this is going to be the hemp growers license that's issued by the North Carolina Department of Agriculture is essentially the size of a legal letter envelope. In the middle of it, it has the North Carolina seal. It has listed on there North Carolina Department of Agriculture versus Bob's Happy Hemp Farm. That's the biggest thing. We're looking at the state, the state seal that's imprinted in the middle of the license. That's the first piece. Second piece, if somebody handed you a package, somebody was transporting hemp from, say, Greensboro to the western side of the state here, or from Morganton all the way out to, say, Salemburg, and Right now, there's no law saying that you shall have this in your possession during transportation. There's no, no law saying you shall or you're going to do this, make law enforcement notifications. So it's best practices to carry the business license or who a copy of the hemp grower's license. Something also verifying that one, the place where this came from has came from a reputable grower, a licensed grower in the state, because that is something you have to have. You cannot grow hemp without that license within the state. The law is clear on that. The second thing is if I just bought biomass, we'll say I bought a thousand pounds of biomass because I'm a distributor or a processing facility and I'm going to convert it into oil. Biomass is that entire plant ground up is what that is. That's what's going to go in to the product of extracting where they're trying to extract CBD or cannabidiol from the plant or CBN, CBG, whatever it is, whichever cannabinoid that they're going for. If I bought this from a farmer, I may not have that farmer's a copy of his or her license. They may go, I'm not giving you a copy of that license, burn you a photocopy of it. But what I do need to have as part of a best practice is the certificate of analysis or COA. That means there is some lab analysis saying that this is in fact hemp. This has been evaluated in a scientific aspect to say that this product has less than 0.3% THC concentration. And because of the growing process and the way the rules are written, and these are rules, not laws, some folks are going to have those COAs or certificate of analysis already because of the way things are tested during the growing process by the Department of Agriculture. So the other part of this, when we're talking about paperwork, because there's no specific laws or rules in place, 
the best way to do this is one, get educated on this, understand the differences. If you want education on it, call us at Just Academy. They will send me out and I will teach your agency. I've got agencies contacting me right now saying, I want you here for, if I can get you here for a five day period of time, I'm going to rotate 95% of my deputies or my officers to their various shifts through your eight hour course. You give me eight hours and you will walk out feeling confident and go, I can do this. There's a lot to make these determinations, but there's also a lot of communication with our growers and our processing facilities. It goes a long way if I go to a processing facility or a grower and say, before you harvest this, can you contact us here at the sheriff's department, the police department, wherever it is, so we know that you're about to take three, four, five, six, ten thousand 10,000 plus pounds of hemp from the field to your drying facility. I mean, it's going to hit the roadways. So that's beautiful information to put out at roll call. That protects my officers. If I'm a supervisor and I know I've got a grower or growers in my jurisdiction, I'm going to go and start building rapports with them and telling my officers to go talk to them. I want to know that. I want them to also go there and say, can I see your license? Can I see what it looks like? Get educated by those folks itself and let them help you make some decisions, be able to look at some of this stuff and go, hmm. I know what the license now looks like. I've seen it at this farm, this farm, this farm, this farm. Or if I'm at a processing facility, if you're at a processing facility, you are not going to see a license. Processing facilities get a letter back from the Department of Agriculture that basically tells them that they have received their letter of intent to go through and work as a processor or whatever the case may be. So you need to look at that letter and go, oh, it's not an actual license. There's nothing that says it also has to be posted too. When we're talking about paperwork, if somebody's transporting, we know they don't have to carry any paperwork because this is a commodity in the law's eyes. And we didn't get to write the laws. This is where part of this problem gets in. Nobody came to law enforcement and said, hey, Mr. Police, Mr. Deputy, Mr. State, LA agency, what do you think about this? This bus was already rolling down the road for somebody said, oh yeah, um, if you see this bus, this is a school bus and not a Greyhound bus. Nobody came to us and told us what this is or asked us our opinion on how to do this better and safer. But paperwork wise, when I go through an eight hour course with somebody, I show them the paperwork. They're going to see examples of it out there. And this is great information, not only for the officers to know, but man, this is beautiful for my district attorneys, my magistrates, my judges, because these cases may or may not be going in front of them. And this is the other part of this key. Once I do something, will my district attorney's office back me? Will they go, well, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know what a database looks like, the license. I don't know the questions. Some, a few of them are kind of picking it up. When I say a few, I can say less than 20 That, from what I've seen. We have the ability to educate these folks, show them the paperwork so they can make some best practices and or implement some policies that are going to help give you some guidance to help protect you. If I know a policy, I know clearly in black and white what I can or cannot do. If I step out of that realm, that's on me. But as long as I'm within policy, we assume we should be safe. It doesn't mean you can't get sued or something like that, but that's my guidelines to tell me this is how I can or cannot proceed. If your agency doesn't have policies, they need to get educated on this quick and figure it out quick and implement something. And that is to protect not only the officers, but them 
in case of lawsuits. It's not just an officer gets sued. It's the agency. It's the city of the town of the county of that also gets sued. They go for the big pockets because they know as cops, we're broke. What are you going to get? You get $29 out of my bank account. <laughs> that's what you're going to get in my pocket change. That's, that's what you're going to get. So yeah, there's there's paperwork out there. We have the education ability to show you what it is, but there's very minimal paperwork and there's no rule saying you shall carry it. You shall have it displayed. Your employees shall have it. It shall be at this location, whatever. Well, a couple of pieces of just great advice came out of that response. A is the education piece, and hopefully some of the various associations, North Carolina Association, district attorneys, magistrates associations, et cetera, are all getting into this education piece and are doing all that they can to educate their folks within the judicial branch. And the other part that you mentioned of just having cops out on the street to start a relationship with these folks, what's wrong with just saying, hey, can I see this piece? of paper. I've never seen it before. Educate me. Help me help you and help me help some folks down the road in my agencies. I want to turn the curve a little bit too, because you touched on this in your answer. We already know there are a handful of states that have legalized marijuana and it's no doubt on the table in several legislatures across our country. We know that hemp is legal. I know this may sound like a bit of an unusual question, but I'm pressed to ask it. Can law enforcement officers use hemp? Legally, again, not an attorney, but what it says, this is a commodity. In my mind, absolutely yes. Where you're going to hit the gray areas, do you have a policy on this? Is there a policy on this procedure? You don't get intoxicating effects. You don't have psychotropic effects. It doesn't alter judgment. And for a lot of cops, this is an alternative that they are turning to versus opioids. Because once you hit that, it's a hard road that you're driving down to stop and do a U-turn on. We're walking around, our bodies are busted up. Most of us are wearing anywhere from 30, 45 plus pounds on your body and stuff. Getting in and out of those cars and everything, 30, 40, 50 times a shift, that puts wear and tear in your body. What are the alternatives? Back starts hurting. You get a bulging disc. You start rolling an ankle. You start having pinched nerves and you go to the doctors. What are they starting to push you? Most of the time, opioids. And we know that's a hard issue to deal with. Is this a safe alternative? I'm going to tell you from me personally as Bill. Yes, this is a safe alternative to explore. But on the other side, because this is derived from the cannabis sativa oil plant with 0.3 or less percent THC concentration, there is a possibility that you could come up hot on a urinalysis test. There's several different products out in the market from a full spectrum product. A full spectrum product essentially means it'll have up to 0.3% THC in it. Or there's a broad spectrum product that used to be called T-free, what they meant to say was THC-free. They couldn't make that claim on THC-free because you could measure the THC somewhere about four to five places to the right of the decimal. So it was measured in like the 10 thousandths of percentages. But once it hits your body, there is, and I have not seen this with law enforcement. I have seen this and I've discussed this with several defense attorneys, um, listened to a lot of podcasts where this is a growing issue where people are claiming, quote unquote, what they just come up hot on your analysis for was actually hemp or they were using CBD and stuff out there. So this is something officers need to discuss with agencies. I have yet to see a panel test 
that will make the determination down to the nanogram level on whether or not what just spiked in your urinalysis is in fact hemp or marijuana. That's a wide open market. I do know there are some companies that are trying to make that evaluation because it's being requested and that'll be something that can basically corner the market. But from a federal and legal standpoint, if anybody can possess this, police can possess this. It's just policy-wise, what can this cause? Say I've used hemp because I've got a bulging disc and the doctor's been giving me hydrocodone and I don't want to take hydrocodone, okay? I don't want to go down that road, but I'm looking for an alternative. I'm icing my back every night. I'm having a problem with this. This is creating an issue. It's creating an officer safety issue because if I get in a fight with somebody, if I get in a certain position, is my back going to pinch? Am I going to fold? Whatever the case is, how much pain can you take? So what is the safe alternative? Is it to use this? So how do you discuss this with command elements? That starts going into heavy into legal stuff. I can't deal with that. But with the right education aspect, you should be able to make that determination because say if you are that guy or gal with that pinched nerve, that bulging disc, whatever, and you have a use of force incident that causes you to, say, shoot somebody, you interrupt the robbery, you go to a domestic, somebody pulls a gun on you, it's a good shooting. We know historically what's the first thing that happens. Well, they take your stuff off you and send you to hospital, blood work, your analysis test, all this stuff. All of a sudden, you've never tried anything in your life and all of a sudden, Hey, uh, Officer Jane, Officer John, you just come up hot for marijuana in there. Why did you come up hot? Because that is looking for the THC metabolite marker in that test. So there is a potential, not saying it could happen, and I can't even give you the percentages, but I can tell you even through the network of thousands of people that I deal with, I have still yet to hear of a cop coming up hot on your analysis for this. So it's going to break down to, in my mind, yes, law enforcement can use hemp, but there's got to be some sort of policy to say, hey, do I make a notification of my bosses? You know, you could put a policy down and say, hey, if you're using hemp or CBD derived or hemp derived products like CBD, CBN or something like that, if you're taking CBN for, say, sleep in lieu of a CNS depressant like Zolpidem, um, Ambien, whatever it is, but what alternatives do I have? Well, if I start looking at this because melatonin is not working for me and I need something to knock me out because I'm working midnights, I'm in court half the day because I make a lot of arrest. And when I go to bed, I can't sleep and I got to be to work in seven hours and I've already been up 19 hours. So I take CBN. Is there something in place that's going to protect me? So the answer is there has to be a dialogue built with elements. I think an agency, again, not giving legal advice because I can't, I'm not a lawyer, but if I had to look at this from a supervisory standpoint, I would have to say, we've got to come up with a policy on this because somebody has to make notification to us if they're going to take this in lieu of, say, an opiate or part of a holistic healing type thing versus any other prescribed medications, whatever the case is, how can I protect my officer that's out there? And if they make notification to us, we could could understand that, yes, they could potentially come up hot for this urinalysis. How can I block them from it? I don't know. That'd be the same thing as because this is listed as a commodity. Can I say, well, nope, you can't eat Doritos on shift because you could come up 3% increase on saturated fat on your urinalysis test or something like that. It's a hard line. So I think to kind of compress this together is the magic word you talked about, which is notification. If I'm a cop and I, and I have rolled that ankle or I've got that compressed or blown disc and I don't want to take the opioid, 
just don't go out and do it on your own. Let somebody know, let your doctor know, hey, write me a letter. I know you can't prescribe it. Write me a letter that tells me that this is okay. Just notification in general, I think is is what a wise man would say. Don't keep this to yourself. So this kind of rolls me into the next question of age. We have age restrictions on everything from how old you can be to be arrested to possession of alcohol and purchase of cigarettes and how old you can be to get a tattoo in the state of North Carolina. So where are we when it comes to any age restrictions on possession of him? Are there any? Zero. And that scares a lot of people. Currently in North Carolina, with the way this is written, there are zero age restrictions. And again, that scares people because people sit down and say, well, our kids could be smoking it. Well, yeah, they can. This has been listed as a commodity. Someone in USDA, FDA has said this is, if it's hemp, it's generally recognized as safe. Zero age restrictions on it. So how do you address this when it comes to things out there? I mean, do you look at somebody because they're smoking something, but technically a 12-year-old could be walking down the street smoking a hemp cigarette, looks like weed, smells like weed. The signature after decarboxylation, meaning superheating, meaning it you lit it on fire, is going to smell just like weed. That's going to spin your head, and a lot of people go, well, duh, that's bad for them. Well, is it? We don't have the studies for it. Nobody's listed an age restriction on it. So there's nothing forced to enforce. You know, 10-year-old kid could be in possession of CBD gummies and stuff. What do you do about it? Well, the answer, short answer is nothing because there is no age restriction on it. And as soon as you start dealing with it and locking somebody up thinking, well, I'm going to change the tempo of this and I'm going to change the way lawmakers think about this. And all of a sudden you become bad case law. We have to look at it in a different aspect. And it's hard because this looked like weed, smelled like weed. Historically, still as it is, it's weed. We've got the right to stop, seize, arrest, all this stuff. We never imagined eight, 10 years ago, that we would have a product out there that's illegal that looks like weed and smells like weed by everything. The only difference is the content of THC and that it would be removed from the Federal Controlled Substances Act and it would be listed as a commodity. So we've got to catch up to what is actually out there. This helps us spin our head around it. But no, there is zero age restriction on hemp and or hemp derived product. What that also does not say, a store cannot restrict the sale of it. You may go to a store and the store may say, must be 18 or older, must be 21 or older. That is them. That is their product. They can put that restriction on there. That becomes a civil issue. We're not dealing with civil issues. We're dealing with criminal issues. Well, and I don't mind telling you, and I am probably joined by everyone who is listening to this podcast, that we are collectively shocked to find out the answer to that. So what challenges does this whole camp scenario present in the schools of North Carolina? Well, one, the classification. So now not only do we as law enforcement, not only do we as with our district attorney partners, our whole criminal justice system, our judges, our magistrates have to understand this, but we also need to immediately start building the dialogue with our school administrators. Let me paint a picture for you. Nessaro's working at 
school. Two 14-year-olds are tucked back in corner of the hallway and in the bathroom area, smoking a hemp cigarette. Looks like weed, smells like weed, okay? He, in turn, stops them makes an arrest for a controlled substance violation. They have a package, it has a QR scan code on it, leading that officer to a certificate of analysis and stuff like that. He makes an arrest. It's kind of a prominent school. The parents are kind of well-to-do, so there's some complaining on the backside about it. There are some tests done, there is a lab test that's done, and it turns out, in fact, to be hemp. School administration tries to back the officer and says, you know what, even though that's not a controlled substance, we don't allow tobacco products in our school, so we are upholding the seven-day suspension. Here's what's bad. It's hemp. It's not a tobacco product. This doesn't fit in either one of those categories. So now there's a lot of discussion between the parents, the school district, the agency itself on how do we address this? And it boils down to, well, what does the policy say? Well, God, we ain't got a policy in place. Well, you failed to put a policy in place. You have failed as a school district to actively educate and promote safety within the schools. So you can see where this is going. So because we have no age restriction, in my mind, because I already see this, and this is some issues that I see popping up throughout the networks that I'm talking to with thousands of cops throughout the United States, where they're already seeing this type of scenario play in. So... We have to build part of this education is one, get educated. And if you don't have the time to come offline, here's the other part. School districts, school administrators, they are state resources. They can say, hey, can Bill Ives from the Justice Academy come out and train our school administrators on this? And the answer is yes, 100%. I can come out and educate them, discuss this with them with the big heads, their think tanks, their attorneys, the city administrators, it's up to them to develop the policy. It's up to me to provide the right materials for them to put the right policy into place to cover these situations. So those are two things. It doesn't fit. A student doesn't have, they can be any age to have it. It doesn't fit in the controlled substance category because it's a commodity and it doesn't fit on the tobacco products. In my mind, this is a recipe for disaster. How do we avert this? So these situations be brought up in front of the schools, the school administrators, so they can start implementing policies fast. Whether it's, uh, hey, it's just not allowed on school grounds. I can't, I can't say they can't say that because it's their rules, but it's hard place to sit down and say, be the same thing as, well, you can't bring a snack size bag of Doritos onto school campus. You know, how do you put this in there? Again, I don't make those answers. I don't get paid enough money to make those answers. But we have to bring this up to them so they can start addressing this because this is going to be an added layer of protection for our school resource officers who face a whole different bucket of challenges out there. And hats off to if you're a school resource officer, I applaud you because that I'm telling you 100% that is not something I could deal with. <laughs> You're a different breed of cop. You face a different set of challenges that to me are scary. I'm used to a different approach. I've been a narcotics guy and a gang cop for most of my career. So the challenges are no policies out there. Um, and it has to be brought up to the school administrators on what to do and how to approach it. But they have to get that piece of education. What is hemp? What is hemp-derived products? 
Is it legal? What does it look like? What's it in its various forms? Because when I say it's in its various forms, there is CBD infused water out there. So what if somebody raises a complaint and all of a sudden you get anonymous tip to your SRO office up to the principal's office to the teacher saying, well, Betty Smith has some weed water, you know, can you pick up a bottle uh, of CBD and go, well, I can tell this is CBD derived from hemp versus marijuana because there is CBD that is derived from the actual marijuana plant too. We discussed that in the training. And again, we go over how to make the determination on the differences between the two. Well, I think at the end of the day, you have made it even more clear that there are two things that we have to do. That is train and get educated because there's an awful lot of entities out there that need both of those things from law enforcement to district attorneys, to magistrates, to judges, to the public schools. And as you have alliterated numerous times, we're a little bit behind the eight ball. So we've got some catching up to do. And the North Carolina Justice Academy and you are leading the way. And we thank you for doing that. Bill, once again, you just took us to school on the subject of hemp and all of the complexities that come with it. Thanks again for lending us your time and expertise to the podcast. I appreciate it. And again, I'm available. You reach out to us. We'll get you what you need because obviously I'm passionate about this. I can give you an eight hour period of time, enough confidence to go back to where you're actually processing marijuana related cases and have your officers confident enough to make these determinations out there in the field to reduce the liability of lawsuits and increase our overall officer safety, not only from lawsuits and stuff, but their mental stability. I want them to go in to whatever they do with a level of confidence to know that they're making the right decision. And I would say that if I were a law enforcement agency head, either a police chief or a sheriff, that would be eight hours of good investment for me and my guys. Bill Oaks is a narcotics and gang instructor for the North Carolina Justice Academy and a guy who obviously knows his stuff on the subject of him. Feel free to send him an email or call him on the Western Campus that concludes this session of NCJA 1014. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And as always, please be safe.